Geeks Movie Geeks United. Thank you for tuning in tonight. We have not had a regular discussion show in a few weeks because we've been focused on special series and that kind of stuff. But we are back to catch up on all the latest movie news and give you our takes on these various headlines. Uh, So let's start there first Um, because these are things that we have not yet discussed on the show. First up, the directors of the upcoming Star Wars movie. This is the Han Solo standalone movie. Uh, Chris Lord and or, uh, what are their names again? They were fired. Lord and Miller. <laughs> Lord and Miller are Chris, their names. Chris guys Miller and the, Phil Lord, right? Yeah, I think so. I yes. think. But they're the guys who did and, the 21 Jump Street and the Lego movie. Uh, yeah. And, and Chris and, Lord has still a, Chris Lord has been on our show. Uh, mm. So they also did uh, uh, "Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs." It's Cloudy and uh, and Legos that they've uh, written, uh, a- a- written and directed. Uh, Twenty One Jump Street they just directed. So, but uh, I think uh, they were fired. They're yes. fired off the new Star Wars movie because their their tone, what they were going for, was different than what Kathleen Kennedy had in mind. And um, just to finish setting this up, what's odd about it is they've already been shooting since February, so there's a ton of footage. I mean, the majority of the movie has to belong to them uh, after shooting for so long. But they brought in Ron Howard as a substitute director. And uh, who knows how the credits are going to go, but I'm pretty sure they're all going to have co-directing credits in the end. I mean, I think they're going to arbitrate this if it doesn't go that way. Right. Well, Well, I think it goes to a much deeper thing that maybe this is a movie that should not have been tackled. I mean, this is, I mean... How do I say this? I, I do believe that Kathleen Kennedy is going to is, is the Barbara Broccoli of her generation. Um, there's no doubt about that. Now, um, but I have to also ask, what were you thinking if you didn't like these guys' style? Why did you hire them in the first place? What? I mean, it doesn't seem like this was very well thought out. Um, I mean, it, it really seems like someone screwed the pooch early on. You knew these guys were going to improvise. Well, I mean, you knew I, the. No, I don't I mean, know if they knew that. <laughs> well, how could they not? How well, could you they certainly not? knew. I mean, you certainly knew it after four months, and there, and there's a whole yeah. lot of preparation that goes on beforehand, where you get to know the people and their approach to what the eventual shooting will be. Yeah. Okay. Well, first yeah. of all, let's just say this. Okay. First of all, the the inside story is that it's <clears throat> that it's Lawrence Kasdan who's written the screenplay along with his son, uh, uh, I think it's Jake. Uh, he lobbied for uh, for uh, Lord Ed Miller uh, early on, and she went with uh, his suggestion. Uh, as far as the uh, improv goes, um, I... I mean, with with them doing two other two uh, animated movies before this, maybe they didn't realize that there's improv maybe in some of that. 
uh, maybe they thought that all of that was was written. I, I, I it was for all I know. Uh, I, it's only Twenty One Jump Street that, that sticks out to me as a as a uh, at least partially improv movie. So well, the two of the two of them, yeah. There's two. There's two Jump Street movies, and right. they're both heavily improv movies, from what I can tell. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, did they do the second one? I wasn't sure that they did the second one, but, um... I think they, they might, though, they had some input in it, but, yeah, I mean... Um, okay, well, uh, as far as them getting fired late, uh, into the thing, I think they probably were avoiding, uh, firing another director so soon after firing... The other one after the uh, what was it? Who they fire in the last one? Gareth Edwards or somebody like that? Did they actually fire Gareth Edwards or was, did he just step down? What, he, he stepped I, down, but they didn't. But basically, what I'm saying is they didn't want another you know controversy with the fans and you know the industry over you know replacing yet another director, uh, and they tried to they tried to go along with it. I can see that they <clears throat> you hear that they you know. They repeatedly told them, you know, we need more footage, we need we need more coverage, you know, you're putting only three cameras on things when we want 12 cameras on it, uh, we don't want all the improv, and uh, they, they, I think they thought that they were going along, they were, you know, uh, working with them, trying to get them uh, to do the right thing, and it, maybe it was inconceivable uh, for Kennedy uh that uh they weren't following directions it's certainly inconceivable to all of us uh but the big problem here is and they need to remember this that uh you know the two best uh directors of the series besides you know George Lucas with the first one were Irvin Kershner and uh Richard Marquand for Empire and Return of the Jedi. So, uh, and, and who are those guys? Those guys were journeyman directors that did any kind of script that was given to them that uh, they they could adapt their style very easily. In fact, they had an invisible style, and that's the kind of directors that we need. We don't need directors. Directors for Star Wars movies are a lot like the directors for James Bond movies, they they don't need to bring a ridiculous style of their own to it. They need to they adhere can. to a house style. They can't. They can't bring. No one can bring. God, you know, you can't have an auteur direct these kind of movies. Um, yeah. You really can't. Well, it's, it's, it's just not, it's, it's it's con- not allowed. It's, conce- it, it's conceivable, though. I mean, it is conceivable if it is allowed, that somebody can make a different kind of Bond movie. That even even something like the Harry Potter franchise, you have distinct marking, markings of really singular directors. Yeah, uh, and I, I'm not I'm no big fan of the Harry Harry Potter franchise, but uh, but I, at least I know that some of the director's vision bleeds into that franchise. Yeah, it's just the, the problem one. of I, I'm I'm sure that they brought in Lord and Miller because. Han Solo is a character with a lot of attitude and swagger, and they wanted directors that could bring that energy to it. Um, and but it, it isn't it isn't Lawrence Kasdan who fired them. <laughs> I mean, I mean, oh, no, I know. But he, it, 
he he yeah. was he was instrumental. He was not happy that they were rewriting the the director of Darling Companion was not happy that they were um that he was rewriting their lines. Okay, let me, uh, let me, let me the director. He's good. He's, he's good, no, he's man. very Come good. On. But I think we're really no. I like Lawrence Kasdan a lot, but let let me be very honest here. You know, I think when all is said and done, when we get to um, episode nine. I think there's going to be a school thought. I was talking about this some of the other night. Hey, you know what? The prequels weren't so bad. I really nah, believe... No. Yeah, no they're they're not, that's not going to happen. Indeed, <laughs> it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Nah, I, I really, nothing's going to save them. No. <laughs> well, that's that scene. You're absolutely. You're actually kind of wrong there because that started with the last film, The Force Awakens. There's a whole movement underfoot. I'm not saying I'm a fan of the prequels. I'm not. A, I'm not. I'm not a fan of the prequels. I'm not. But there, I think when all is said and done, they're going to say, you know what? We just spent 4.4 billion dollars to make several fan movies. We just made yeah. fan movies, and at the end, and that's what they but, saw. You know, let's not. Let's not but, who, but who? Finish. But who? Okay. And let me finish. That's what these two films that we've seen are. They are fan movies. They are as if, hey, let me, this is what I do with my action figures. That's what we've seen so far from these two films. <laughs> let me see. No, but I, I mean, that's really what we've seen. Am I not, am I wrong in that? Am I really thinking <laughs> I like about the idea. But, I like the but, idea of people playing with their action figures. That's funny. But that's what it is. Isn't that what you've seen yeah, but, so far, really? Yeah, you've but my point seen, is, why? Why would they give a shit if it keeps making money? I mean, they don't yeah. care what you call it. Well, that's the whole they, thing. That's the whole thing. If these movies did not make money, I think we would have heard more about the problems on the two films, and there have been problems on both. I mean, The Force Awakens is the biggest movie I've ever seen that was made in an editing suite that was really conceived in the editing suite. Um, then Rogue One is sort of a film where we, where we have Gareth Edwards' version and Tony Gilroy's version. So if those movies did not make money, then I think we would have heard about this a lot sooner. But there's a lot of trouble so far in Lucasfilm, and I don't think they anticipated the trouble they're having. But if these movies did not make money, we would have heard about this a lot sooner, I think. Well, and it's it's because it's such a massive investment. Yeah. You know, if if this were a property that they founded... Uh, maybe they wouldn't be so precious about it, but they spent a ton of freaking money, and they yeah. have to protect their investment. Uh, so you know, it's a producer's medium, really. This franchise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and I, let's be. And, and speaking of the money, I think they have made back the money they paid Lucas. I think with just the two theatrical grosses, I think they've made back the money. So I mean, now it's just everything is going to be profit from here on out. But I think they have finally broke even. Um, another so. another worrying thing is they uh, they had to bring in an acting coach for Alden Ehrenreich. Uh, so that doesn't sound great. <laughs> I mean, and I do think I do I do worry about the casting of Alden Ehrenreich because I really don't think that he is somebody in his career thus far. Uh, in the movies that we've seen him in, has really, and he's been fine in both of them, but uh, uh, or at least two of them. But uh, um, I just don't, I don't see Han Solo in him. Doesn't mean it can't happen. I'm just saying, you know, it's it's a little iffy to me. 
and there seems like there were other other possibilities I out there. I wonder if if I wonder with Han Solo as with to a degree with Indiana Jones. I mean, River Phoenix is fine as the young Indiana Jones. I don't really care about the politically correct thing that was the TV series, the young Indiana Jones Chronicles. But I am wondering if Han Solo is one of these things that only Harrison Ford can play. I really am beginning to think that that it's just like in, it's just like know. Indiana Jones. Uh, I mean, I mean do you really want to see somebody Phoenix else play decent. that? Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I, I didn't mind. Obviously, River Phoenix was very good as a young for that. Well, that, that well he was perfect. Crusade. I mean, that yeah, was perfection. Was let's let's yeah. say that was. But perfection. we're not going to get that. <laughs> I mean, I really do think this was this was not the thing I would. You know, they. You know, well, fans have been. Let's be honest. Uh, Indiana Jones is a is a much more specifically written character than something like Han Solo. Yeah, uh, that's why Harrison true, Ford true. would prefer to play Indiana Jones over Han Solo again any day. Because it was basically crafted for him. So, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to yeah. get to see that, hopefully. Uh, yeah. Um, okay, well, so what do you think of I Ron think Howard? He's, he's, he's the perfect. perfect kind, he's the perfect kind of director to do it. Yeah, I mean, I mean he, he, nothing he, short he, of George Lucas. No, he, he fits. He fits the bill. He's not a. Yeah. He's he's not a. He's not a screenwriter because we can't have screenwriters doing these movies either. Uh, if you're bringing in a, somebody who's known as a screenwriter to direct it, they're going to bring a specific style to it. It's just right. the way it is. Uh, um, so that was their problem of hiring these two guys. This is another problem of hiring those two guys. But uh, he's perfect in that he's not a screenwriter. And he's not a guy. He's a guy that that you know tackles other people's scripts almost mm-hmm. exclusive, exclusively. I don't think he's written one script. Maybe he helped write "Eat My Dust" or something like that. But uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, he didn't, uh, and and he's not an artiste. He's not a he's not an auteur. He I mean he is an auteur, but. Uh, he's not he's not the kind of auteur that we're used to that write and direct their own movies. Uh, he's he's, uh, he's you know he, I mean they he they they know that they have a very competent person manning the ship, and he will get the job done on time and on budget. Yes, uh, you know, and he comes from that world. Uh, he has a history with Lucas. He does. Uh, yeah, yep. I mean, he yeah. loves Lucas. I mean, he adored Lucas. I mean, so I don't think there's. See, that's my thing. I was thinking, if you're going for Ron Howard, why not just go and ask the, ask the guy George back, for that matter? I mean, um, we were spared a young Han Solo. Um, we almost got a young Han Solo in the third Star Wars movie. So, I mean, we almost got that. That was written into Revenge of the Sith, and thankfully they knew to take that out. But um, Well, so. uh, uh, yeah, I could easily see, you know, if this if this period works out, where they, uh, you know, where he's fixing up this particular movie, that they could easily go to Ron Howard for the next one and get him to direct a full one. Well, they might do that. I mean, I, they I'm should. To just see, to, well, I'm just curious to see what, you know, what they want to do after Episode Nine because I don't envy anyone associated with Episode Nine. That's a job I wouldn't want for all the money in the world. Is that um, the is that the Colin Trevorrow one? Is that who's doing? Yeah, that and one? it's not not his fault. No, no, I'm not saying it because of him or anything. I'm just saying because you your your movie your let's put it like this: the movie changed drastically when Carrie Fisher died. 
Let's not make any bones about that. That was she was supposed to have a big part but, in that one too. Okay, yeah, and, yeah. You know what I mean? You know, so yeah. I don't but, but the fact that it was already written and uh, oh and, no, I don't think it was written. No, episode nine oh. wasn't written yet. Um, they were writing that as they're in a, and Well, I they had to make some kind of you know, just to be honest, they had to make some kind of contingencies for for that possibly happening. I mean, you know, yes, she, she died young, uh, younger than you know. We expected, but uh, uh, but they had to have some kind of thing, you know, about how Leia was going to be eventually written out of the series. Well, I know she would be written out of that one, but I think they wanted her to be in that one, though. I don't yeah. think it was something, you know, it's like, it, it's a job I would not want. Uh, you know, it's like one of those things, oh dear, what do we do now? We've got yeah. Mark Hamill to do all the heavy lifting. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, episode I, 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 nine will be directed by Trevorrow. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah. Our next topic is uh, Daniel Day Lewis. He, um, yes. the upcoming Paul Thomas Anderson movie that comes out around the holidays this year. Uh, Daniel Day Lewis made a statement through his publicist. This isn't rumor. It it was made through his publicist. That Daniel Day Lewis is retiring from acting, and the Paul Thomas Anderson movie will be his last, where he plays a fashion designer in '60s London. Um, so, uh, first of all, uh, do you believe it? Secondly, do you understand it? <laughs> okay, number one, I believe it. Number two, yes, I understand it. This guy's this guy's modus operandi of doing of doing roles is that he stays in the role for almost the entire for the entire stretch of the length. So when he was when he stepped out from the camera in Lincoln, he was still Lincoln. When he stepped out from in front of the camera in uh you know, my left foot, he was still in a wheelchair and still still acting as if he had that affliction. Uh, this, this is a guy that throws himself into every role. This is a guy that when he played Hamlet on stage, he actually walked off stage in the middle of a performance because he started seeing ghostly apparitions of his own father on stage. So this guy is, let's face it, being an actor must be kind of nutty, and uh, you know this guy is kind of suffering from the kind of thing that maybe uh who knows uh, i mean i'm not saying that he's mentally ill or anything like that i'm just saying that he throws himself into the work so much that he he works himself up into a ladder and it's got to be very uh exhausting i mean they made it you know ronald coleman won an oscar for a double life at playing an actor who suffers from this sort of thing mm-hmm. uh and uh uh so <clears throat> you know, uh, he, he's he's probably tired of it, and uh, to, uh, you know who knows. You know he 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 has every right to change his mind. He probably said that himself, but uh, you know he does spend a lot of time uh, in between movies. So really, if he's stuck with it, you know, uh, you know, I mean, he's he's going to be seventy. He'd be seventy before his next movie comes out, probably. Yeah, so, I mean. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I totally, I, do, I do totally understand it, and uh, uh, and you know, I mean, even now, 
<clears throat> he, uh, you know, we're also talking about a guy who took a couple of years off to make shoes. Uh, uh, yes. But now, now he wants to, uh, at, probably as a result of his of uh, this new movie, uh, uh, which is called Phantom Thread, uh, at least right now. That's not the uh, title. Huh? That's, that's, yeah. Uh, uh, um, that's, that's probably not the title. <clears throat> uh, oh, okay. So that's what but it's been given. Oh, I see. Um, well. Uh, uh, now he wants to go and design dresses. That was though in the British tabloids. I don't know how true that that is though. I don't, okay. But, but that was no serious. That was in the British tabloid press. Let's not let's not use that as the um, be all end of the truth. We're no better than okay. Um, anyone. It's a British tabloid thing. No, right. let's be very honest. If he goes out, let's say he does this. Let's say he's going to retire. Let me be very clear right now. He's going to get a fourth best actor Oscar right now. That, not that's necessarily. A four, no, that's a foregone conclusion, babe. You gave him for Daniel Plainview. You gave him for Abraham Lincoln. You're going to give him for this. He's going to go out on top. I don't think I've ever seen anything like this where an actor is going to go out quite on top as this guy. Maybe that's why he's, he's doing gonna it. He's going to go out with a director uh, who gave him one of his best performances. Let's Let's not rule that well, out. No, no, that, I mean, oh that, God, what do we think? Well, no, that's, that's, a, that's important. I mean, whether yeah. he makes a, wins an Oscar for it or not, uh, he, he's going out before his work suffers, which mm-hmm. invariably most great actors, the longer they do it, their work suffers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. yeah. Because the same stuff you're talking about, disappearing into a role and living the role almost to a point of psychosis, can be said of a lot of the performances that the De Niro's, Pacino's, and Hoffman's gave in the 70s. Mm-hmm. The more they work, and you know, they do two, three movies a year or whatever, the more they work, it's, it's uh, decreasing returns. He doesn't want that to happen to him, I'm sure. And I know, Dean, that you're right, um, that it's just a, such a physically and emotionally exhausting process for him. It's pleasurable in a certain way. It's like an exorcism. But uh, at the same time... Daniel Day Lewis has other interests. That's why mm-hmm. I, I didn't think I didn't think the whole rumor about him going into the fashion world uh, was a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, whether true or whether it's true or not, I understand it. I mean, he's always had other passions and interests that he wanted to explore outside of acting. It's not something scandalous. And by the way, he hasn't ruled. Has he ruled out like working on stage or something like that? Because uh, I don't think that he's done that. So I mean, uh, and uh, you know, remember he's he's married to a director, Rebecca Miller. So uh, who uh, who knows? You know, she might she might coax him into something. He's already been in one of her movies. Yeah, that's but, true. Uh, so. But uh, you know, outside of that, I, I totally take him at his word, and and uh, you know what, I think it's good uh, <laughs> that that certain uh, that performers or directors or whatever, uh, you know, are aware of of you know they have mortality and they're aware and, yeah. and they're also they're not super beings and uh, and and also they don't owe us anything for liking their shit. Right. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, they don't owe us a He's whole a life. lifetime. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Christ, exactly. look at the musicians. Let's look at musicians. We want musicians to come out and tour and everything. As you get older, touring is an exhausting experience. Uh, yeah, it's can just you imagine? It takes so, 
Yeah, <laughs> you imagine you're going all over the world. Like, you know, uh, James Hetfield of Metallica was on Joe Rogan's podcast a couple months ago, and he said, look, guys, I'm getting, you know, we're getting older. We have other interests we want to do. We have families we haven't seen in years. Yeah. We'd like to spend time with them. We'd exactly. like to do things. And I understand that. So I understand it with Daniel Day-Lewis. And you're absolutely right, Dean. Thank you for saying it. He doesn't owe us anything. Right. I'm not a damn yeah. thing. I mean, and that goes for every artist, every creative. They don't owe us anything. My God, we demand, oh, when are you going to come out with a new album or a new movie? No. No. In they fact, it's to... usually the first question that's asked of them after yeah, they deliver which, something yeah. new. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's next for you? Like, what, Good what God, you will you just, just let I me just rest? Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, like, <laughs> it's like asking Kubrick, like, oh, your Full Metal Jacket just came out this week. What's next? It's like, <laughs> why don't you deal with this movie, you know? It's yeah, like, really. I mean, no, anyway. I'm actually going to work on the Shelley Duvall story, actually, next. That's my next movie. <laughs> it actually feels like, I mean, it feels akin to, like, Carson retiring in, in 92. Yeah. When Carson retired. He could have he could have been on that stage until the day he died. But he said, you know, I'm, if I go any further, uh, it's just, it's not going to be as relevant or as good, and the memories yeah. will be tainted. Yes. So why not? Yeah, I I think I think I've said it on this show before and you know, I will continue to say it. Uh I uh I think, you know, retirement needs to be uh considered by all artists, you know. Uh you know, I know some people disagree and, and think that artists need to keep on working until they drop, uh but uh, you know, there's something to be said for like, look, my work is done here. I have nothing else to prove. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I, you know I, I'm of the opinion that, it, I mean, it's up to the artist. I mean, yeah. in terms of them not owing us anything, uh, it's not my place to make their life decisions for them. They can do whatever the hell they want. If they well, want to keep working, let them keep working. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I agree. So let me just throw something out there, though. So I watched or I listened to it, I didn't watch it, I listened to it at work, um, William Freakin being interviewed by Nick, Nicholas Reffin, and, and when Nicholas shuts up, it's actually very interesting, <laughs> um, but he doesn't let him, I don't know if you guys have listened to that or watched that yet, where he interviews him about Sorcerer. Mm. No, I haven't. It's fascinating, I strongly recommend it, but towards the end of it, um, William Freakin brings up a lot of good points, as he always does, he did in our interviews and everything, um, and he says, "Look, I mean, you can be you're, you're, you can be the hottest kid in town, but eventually, the times change. People mm-hmm. don't want you anymore." And That's of right. course, he brings up. And of course, he brings up Billy Wilder. He said Billy Wilder could not get a meeting in the last twenty years of his life. He wanted to. We all know he wanted to direct, but he couldn't. No one was going to. No studio was going to finance a movie. Um, by for him or whatever. So he the times have certainly have... changed on him, definitely. Yeah, I mean, and that, really and got that a whole cabal, you know. Yeah, he and... got a raw deal. I mean, but he, it's a very interesting. He brings up he goes, it was very interesting. He he brings up this thing because you know Nicholas Reffin in this interview is, well, I'm a younger version of you, and you just really want to. And there was a point where William Freak is like, is there? I think that we need to get a medic here. We need to get an ambulance to pull up here. This kid's nuts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, but it was very I, – I like when someone likes that brings up Billy Wilder or something. He goes, you can be the hottest kid in town, but eventually the times change. It doesn't matter how great 
you are. The times do change and people change. And that's another thing we have to keep yeah, in I mean, mind. And at the same time, I think William Freakin', William Freakin has changed with the times. Uh, I mean, when he came back and he did Killer Joe and he did Bug. and he, I mean, he found, he found kind of leaner avenues to, yeah. to stay in the game. No, yeah. no, true, true. He, he, is, he is one of the great rock and tours. But have you noticed that William Freakin nowadays, that he loves everything? Like, everything is the fucking best movie of the year. Like, the best horror movie of the year. I, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, don't I know saw if you've that. Noticed I, that. I, you know, I have noticed that. Um, I, with, with most things, yes, he does come out and say the, those things. Is, um, is, that like a, is that like a thing on Twitter or something? Like, because I don't do Twitter. Does he go on Twitter a lot? And, and yeah, he does Twitter make those, a lot. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, here's another here's a piece of casting news. Um, HBO is making a biopic on Hervé Velasquez. No, Hervé Villachez. 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 Yes. From uh, which, whom most people know from Fantasy Island. He, uh, he does have a fascinating. He has a fascinating life and also like a fascinating death. And uh, <clears throat> I think the movie takes place towards the end of his life. Um, Peter Dinklage is playing him, uh, and you know a lot of politically correct people have brought up, "How dare you cast a non-French Filipino dwarf <laughs> who's also an actor?" <laughs> well, I mean, I guess we have to go. Where's I mean, is anyone from Under the Rainbow still alive that we can ask? <laughs> I had to go there. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. Why I not? Mean, you know, why not, Peter Dinklage? Who, who, who else are you going to cast? I mean, with that large pool of French Filipino dwarf actors out there. That's, but and anyway, I like these and you people have that want it. I like these people. Okay, sort of dovetailing into this is this recent controversy that's popped up with this new movie Blind, starring uh, uh, Alec Baldwin as a blind man, and people are mad because he's not a real, you know, blind people are mad because he's not a real blind guy. Is this 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 is the craziest thing ever? This these kind of uh, crazy. I mean, it is nuts. It is so anti-acting, uh, I guess, you know. I mean, like, people don't want people to act. We have to get, you know, the what's going to happen when they remake, you know, Hunchback of Notre Dame? They're going to have to get Hunchbacks, you know, like, uh, they're going to have to, you know, only real Hunchbacks can apply for this job. This is nuts. Uh, this this is uh, craziness. Uh, people need to shut up about this stuff because, you know, uh, then we're going to get, you know, a bunch of amateurs uh, being the leads of these movies, uh, and uh, and who wants that? I mean, we want we want good actors playing these roles, not I, you know, not people that have lucked into some kind of you know uh, some kind of. Uh, you know, lottery or something. Uh, I, I don't well, know. Yeah, it, let me put it to you like this: you couldn't get away with getting Sam Jaffe to play Gunga Din today. That's for sure. Yeah, no way that was going to happen. <laughs> well, all of this is uh, yeah, all of this is kind of an out uh, outstretching of that that type of thing of like getting 
getting Rock Hudson to play a Native American, you know, chief or something like that. You know, I mean, yeah, yes, well, that, a lot of that was yeah. ridiculous, obviously. But now we're going too far over the, the other side of the pendulum. I, I agree, Dean. It's it's political correctness. This is what gives like political correctness such a bad, bad, it bad name. It is. It is. It is in a nutshell. Yeah. So all of it. Well, is, and I remember I remember the same controversies on the stage when. Jonathan Price played the lead in Madam and Butterfly. Right. Uh, whatever. Uh, anyway, my point of the Hervey uh, story was that uh, Andy Garcia has signed on to play Ricardo Montalban in it. Mm. I could see that. I mean, I yes, guess he's here in England, like too. I mean, I could... Okay, Man. so we're recording, we're recording this in the hours prior to the next installment of Twin Peaks. Our last installment of Twin Peaks was, I will say... Uh, definitely one of the great things I've ever seen on TV, and I think one of the great hours created by David Lynch, period, in his whole resume. I thought it was jaw-dropping. It certainly was. I mean, you yep. know, what are you going to say? It was <laughs> it was, uh, it was, was the full full hour of, of uh, you know, a Razorhead-type craziness. Uh, and, uh, you know, people trying to put it together and figure out what it means. Okay, that's that's okay. That's fine. But uh there's something to be said for just uh sort of sitting back and enjoying it. And, uh letting it sort of all wash over you. And uh you know, fan fan theories are are fun and and so forth, but uh it's it's ultimately not really that important. Uh it's uh it's uh, I think it was almost done to throw off everyone who had a fan theory about the show. I think mean, he just decided, I hate, you know, I'm, you know, I'm fed up of, you know, these people who write the, uh, you know, which is a whole cottage industry the last decade, these episode recaps and everything. He was like, yeah. you know what? I need to make an episode that just says, no, you're not going to be able to write about this. <laughs> that defies the recap, yes. Yeah. Uh, and it I does. Let's even... be honest, it does. Just I haven't even tr- about it. Yeah, I, I I haven't even tried to read one of these recap uh, things for uh, for any of these episodes, but particularly for this one, because you know what's it going to be? The point. Just a, <laughs> yeah. I mean, why do you write a recap? I mean, are you reading it after you've seen it? But you've seen it, so why do you need a recap of it? And if you've yeah, seen it, and you and you want to know what happens, and that's why you're reading it, then. Uh, if you don't care enough about it to actually watch it, I mean, why why are you reading about it? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't I mean, get the whole recap thing. <laughs> I, I, I don't it, either, frankly. Yeah, it's a it's an it's a thing that I really it's just something I've noticed. I notice people the people who write about it, I'm just like, well, can't we have our own opinion of what we think the episode means too? Why is your opinion so much more? important i mean and we're talking we're not even talking about we're talking about sitcoms too that this has happened to so i mean <laughs> yeah you know and nuts. i'm just like really i don't need the episode recap of two broke girls i get it thank you <laughs> you know but that's what we, we live in that world now we do live in well, that world dean is, um, dean is absolutely right i mean it tom mclaughlin said something a couple of days ago in an interview where he said everything will make sense by the end of it but uh, but I'm like you know but is that the point? Uh, because the whole point of the original series wasn't uh, who killed Laura Palmer, because effectively once they revealed that the series was was over. I mean mm-hmm. we we watched it because 
of the world that was created, and because of that lingering mystery of not knowing. Um, right. I mean, that was just the reality of that series, not the movie. But uh, no, I don't care if it all makes sense in the end or not. And who wants the whole thing explained out to you anyway? I mean, like, why why do you need the whole – why do we need a whole blow-by-blow blow, uh, kind of explanation right, right. of it? Uh, it's, that that uh, – I mean – I understand why these things are being written, okay, because they're written for, for clicks, and they're written for clicks that come from fans that uh, are obsessive and uh, and have their own ideas and want to see uh, about what they've just seen and want to see them either confirmed or denied. Uh, right. And if they're denied, you know, that it, uh, you know, it makes them – uh, you know, think about it more, or uh, or get angry, or something. Uh, but uh, but whatever it is, it, it's it, these are just things for the the people who are obsessed for over these kind of things. I mean, yeah. just see it. You know, I, I mean, but, I rem- I remember when I I put together the Shining episode, and there was that segment on the theories about what it's about. And, Mm-hmm. And I only put that in the episode because I thought it was an interesting sidebar that people were reading so much into it. I wasn't right. I, I wasn't endorsing any one theory, but I remember this guy like sent me scathing email. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You're an idiot. Blah 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 blah. And right. he said that's not what this means at all. And then he went as far as writing our guests too, and and calling them idiots. <laughs> wow, oh, God, dude. First of all, uh, I mean, should I bow to you? I mean, you know all. But secondly, <laughs> it's stupid. The, the movies belong to everyone. It, it, yeah. the, the only reason for doing those conspiracy theories is to show how people interpret movies based on their own, what they bring yeah. to them. Uh, anyway. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's sort of like reading a book, uh, you know, like uh, a book about you know, I can understand like writing a book about this. I'm just going to take a show out of the thin air, like The Sopranos or whatever. Like, and uh, assessing each episode, you know, maybe years afterwards. But uh, I don't, uh, you know, this this whole immediacy, uh, the immediacy of it is kind of off-putting. Uh, you know, yeah. recaps. Okay, uh, I have one more thought that occurred to me. I was rewatching. A great movie the other day, and I thought to myself, I think this is the probably the best movie of the millennium. Uh, and then and then I put another one on there, like a movie in terms of uh, not my favorite, maybe not even the maybe not even the greatest. I'm talking about in terms of of a summing up uh, social significance that whole shebang. I was thinking, in those respects, maybe the two greatest movies of the millennium are O.J. Made in America and United 93. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, well, you know, there's, there's a case to be made for both of them. Uh, yeah, I mean. Uh, you know, O.J., you know, becomes a little problematic in the sense that, it's, you know, it's it's got its its hands in the television world just as much as the you know as the movie world probably more so to tell you the truth. Uh, but yeah, United ninety three is uh, is a great choice because that that is 
that is a, a, a dramatization of the event that uh, changed the world, and, and we definitely would not have the world that we have right this very second were it not for this particular uh, instance. And uh, it, it feels like United 93 is just uh, 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 you know, it's kind of like a well, it feels like a groundbreaking movie. It just does. Uh, just the, the the way that it tries to capture a, an unimaginable reality uh, yeah. with 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 such a strong finger on reality itself uh, mm-hmm. that uh, it, it's uh, you know it's it's unimaginable how how he was able to do that movie with all the you know with with so many original you know people who non actors. Uh, you know, uh, doing you know most of the roles on the ground, and uh, and and the real people you know who were involved in the real event. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, and then recreating, uh, you know, what's happening in the in the plane. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, so realistically, it, it, it all of that blending together is just uh, mind bending. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's. Paul Greengrass at his best. Um, let's not. I mean, it's really taking all the stuff from Bloody Sunday and everything, and um, it, it's what he does best. And and it's a very underrated. I think it's a very underrated movie. Not enough people talk about it um, today. It's a very well done movie on a lot of different levels. Um, and, and so I yeah, because it could, I mean, it, could have, it could have been. It could have been a great shame. Uh, because the stake the stakes were really high with that movie, and yeah. a lot of people thought it was dis- distasteful. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of people that were prone to think it was distasteful still think it was. They just mm-hmm. don't want to see it on screen. But uh, right. but the the movie is deeply emotional and and yeah. and cathartic cathartic in a way, solemn, uh, and he does it just right. I mean there there's mm-hmm. a level of uh, there's a level of kind of documentary style stuff going on there that he tries with other movies to to lesser uh, effect. He has he he just skirts the line of too much shaky cam, which is like a common yeah. complaint about him. But he doesn't cross cross over. I mean, it, yeah. it's used well. Yeah. <laughs> and he shot and 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 he shot in because a lot of times when you have plane sets. Uh, you, it's it's kind of they can be cut in half, so you have extra room for the crew and everything. Uh, this wasn't. I mean, this stayed enclosed, so you feel you feel like you're on a plane. The cameras are mm-hmm. right there in different spaces. It's, you know, it's, you feel it. It's an amazing, amazing movie. Yeah, I mean, you think of the the mastery that was needed in terms of light lighting, and uh, uh, you know, because the lighting has to be constantly changing uh, uh, in terms of you know what's coming through the windows, but also you know the special effects uh, that were used in the film. I mean, the film is filled with special effects, but there, it's it it's ridiculously invisible effects mm-hmm. uh, like. Well. Uh, to the point where it just doesn't even occur to you <laughs> that, that there are effects in this particular shot. Uh, but uh, 
it's it's extraordinary, and it's extraordinary all right down the line. Like you, you know, the writing, the the casting, the uh, uh, the camera work, the the effects, the sound. Uh, you know, uh, everything is absolutely perfect in it. And uh, yeah, I totally understand people. It's a tough movie to watch. It's not. It's not fun. Uh, and uh, it's it's ridiculously tragic, uh, yeah. but uh, that doesn't you know that should that well, should, and it, <laughs> that it, should not it, be it feels, a, it, yeah. It feels almost it feels like a sacred movie. Um, yeah, in a way. I'm sorry, I swallowed something wrong. So <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was wondering what that was. I mean, uh, so uh, uh, I, should, I should say it was it was a drink. Um, <laughs> it's a sacred movie. I mean, if you see that behind the scenes of on the DVD or Blu-ray, I mean, those actors that played the real life people, and they sat down with the families of these people, and it was it was uh, it was a really kind of solemn duty that they felt to pay to pay honor to these ordinary heroes, you know. And and people that complain, well, they don't know exactly what they talked about on the plane, or but you can imagine. I mean, there 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 are moments. Yeah, that's where, where imagination you know, the, comes in. <laughs> yeah, I the co-pilot, the co-pilot, the co-pilot has a new baby, so maybe he started the morning telling his pilot, the other pilot, about his new baby and not getting any sleep, or you know, that kind of license it, is understandable. And yeah. there's a record of what they're talking about on the plane at a certain time because of the phone calls they made. Yeah. Right. No, I mean, you know, even on that level of trying to, rec- you know, recreate the the, uh, the things that we don't have records of, it's it's absolutely unassailable. It's there's there's nothing that's out that that feels uh, unreal uh, in all of that dialogue. So I mean. Uh, you know, I mean, it's 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 absolutely. I, I agree with you that that it it's probably deserves to be at least in the top five of the movies of of since you know two thousand. Yeah. So, uh, and and really of of all time to tell you the truth, Baby Driver. I, I just want to I want to get my thoughts about, uh, out about this because. <clears throat> I I, I want to say I enjoyed the movie. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna say this first that uh, uh, I I really loved uh, the old timers in it. You know, like mm-hmm. Jimmy Fox and and John Hamm. Best thing that John Hamm has done in a little while. Oh uh, yeah, and, I mean. and Fox. I thought Fox was incredibly uh, uh, you know uh, created a, a reprehensible character that uh, you know right. I, 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 he really made you hate him. And yes, uh, and Spacey, you know, kind of good there, you know, kind of, you know, uh, as an Atlantan, I loved seeing Atlanta portrayed in the movie, although I felt like, <clears throat> I felt like they revealed Atlanta for what it really is, which is a bunch of roads and a bunch of, uh, a bunch of uh, parking garages. It doesn't make, it doesn't make the city look very beautiful or livable. Uh, which it's not a very beautiful or livable city, frankly. Uh, and that comes from somebody who's a native, and uh, I like the older Atlanta that has been torn down. 
Um, but uh, and things were being torn down all the time here. Uh, great things. Um, so uh, so that said, uh, I'm I, I really enjoyed you know seeing some of that stuff. You know the 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 laundromat that they go to is my laundromat. That's the laundromat I go to. Uh, uh, they the uh, the post office at the uh, the the figures in the uh, last third of the movie mm-hmm. is. Is the same. That's that building belongs to Georgia State University. That was filmed on the Georgia State University campus. That building houses the theater that uh, that the Georgia State University uh, uh, players, their uh, stage uh, group, uh, uses. And in fact, I've been on that stage a couple of times. I was in Waiting for Godot, and I was in School for Scandal uh, uh, on that stage in that in that building. So uh, I have a very intimate connection with almost everything that's in the movie that we see. Um, mm-hmm. So that made me that that made me enjoy it quite a bit. Uh, I loved Lily James. I thought she was very charming. But here's my problem with the movie. Uh oh, baby driver himself. <laughs> okay. Uh, I didn't. I I didn't. I was not complete. Uh, I was not charmed at all by uh, Ansel Elgort. <laughs> Uh, uh, who I, you know, found rather annoying, uh, particularly in the opening scenes where he's, you know, listening to songs and playing air guitar and air horns and air drums and air piano to them and singing along, you know, lip syncing to them and everything. I just, I found all of that shit like, wow, this is embarrassing to look at, you know. It's embarrassing to see a person doing that in real life anyway. So I don't really want to see it in my movies. Um, But uh, I also didn't really like the last ten minutes of the movie where I thought, uh, without getting into any details, I just thought that it was extraneous and uh, pandering and, uh, and, you know, the movie should have ended ten minutes earlier on the bridge. Let's just say it like that. And, okay. Uh, that's a fair assessment. I think that's a fair criticism. Yeah, I don't think they needed that last part of it. You know, uh, I, I think it was just put there just to send send the audience out on some kind of phony, phony feel goody bullshit. But, um, but I, I did like a lot of the chases. Here's and, and you know I found it exciting and, and funny at times and and and. Uh, uh, but I do want to say I do think the critical community. This is another case of the critical community going way overboard in their praise of something. Uh, it's just look, it's just a little B movie. It's just they made they made a thousand of these in the seventies, uh, and they they would come and go with no comment, critical commentary whatsoever. In fact, they were just thrown aside. Uh, uh, you know, I could name a I could name a hundred of them. Right, right, right. I mean, yes, they're not being made a lot today, so that's that's something. It is something to be said for, you know, the the one thing that I think the movie does do uh, that's, that's new is uh, is take the music and and choreograph uh, the action on screen to the music. You know, I and, think that's its strongest. I actually think that's the film's strongest thing because when you see that choreography credit in the beginning. 
you're just like, wait a minute, I haven't seen that in a long time. And uh-huh. especially not for this type type of movie. So that opens your eyes right there that maybe, hey, this is going to be a little bit different. No, they made lots of these types of movies. I mean, you're actually right. I mean, they made a lot of these types of movies. And, you know, like you said, they were very, and you know what, a lot of times critics didn't even ignore them, you know, just didn't even give, you know, they were not written about in your uh, Friday paper or whatever. So, mm-hmm. um so yeah, no, it's good. I I, I do I do want to say that what the heck, Ant, what what crawled up Anthony Bourdain's ass? So um, what what's that? I I don't <laughs> no, know what that said, is. No, he he went on Twitter. He went on Twitter and said, "Fuck Baby Driver," and then he said, "Here's a good movie, The Raid." Now look, The Raid movies are great, but I didn't. I I was just like, dude, really? I mean, you're all right. You don't like Baby Driver? That's fine, but really, fuck Baby Driver. <laughs> Well, I think that's a little bit of a reaction to what I'm talking about. It's just this over – why can't people just see a thing for what it really is? And I know the answer. They can't because it's a it's a desert out there. It's a desert of quality, and and critics in particular are desperate to love something. They're tired of either being middling towards something or absolutely hating something or having to apologize for liking something or any of that stuff. They want something that's, they, you know, and we all do. We all want something to, to love. Um, but uh, but just because Edgar Wright is a... Uh, you know is is a much loved by much loved by his fans uh and needs a hit <laughs> he needs a hit uh people love his movies but they're not hits uh, no, they're not, so, no. so i i also understand you know the need to sort of rally around this thing to try and make it into a hit which which it is uh, yeah it is a hit he has nothing to worry about he's fine yeah so so that that's that's okay but but say what it really is <laughs> you know i mean it does have problems it has story problems you know it has logic problems uh but it's a movie that you need to sort of throw you kind of have to throw all of that to the side just say look i'm just here to enjoy the the action and that's it right uh, right so i mean it's 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 not terribly original it, it you know it's just a it's just a little b movie yeah Since we were talking about political correctness earlier uh what about sofia copeland avoiding the whole slavery issue in her version of beguiled Yes, let's do talk about that. <laughs> you want to end on that? You want to end on that? Let's end on that. It's her movie. She can make whatever the hell she wants. Having said that, though, you can't in this. You cannot make in this day and age a Civil War movie where it takes place in the backdrop of the Civil War in the South and not. And you cannot in the South, and you cannot have. I mean, there in the in the Don Siegel one, the Clint Eastwood one. There is. Remember, one of the is there is a, there is a slave. There is a slave. There's no you would not know watching this movie. Now having said that though, I, I give you know, I'm not no, we're not gonna use an article on medium, uh, a wretched website if there ever was one, to as our rallying cry. I refuse to do that. Um, I'm sorry, I'm just not gonna do that. But I will say this though, the criticism is valid, but you did have a great movie a couple of years ago with Britt Marlin called The Keeping Room. That had a slave in it, 
about the about the Civil War, yeah. about women during the Civil War. No one talked about that movie, though. No one praised that movie, but we're really quick to come out against Sofia Coppola and say, you know, I do have a, I do have a problem with it. I, you know, I'm trying to have it both ways, but, um, you know, yes, she, she did not want to, she's not interested in that. Is that wrong? Uh, well, okay. Given I'm conflicted that, about that. I'm conflicted, by the way. I'm, I, not, I'm, not, com- I'm not conflicted at all because uh, I, I really don't have, like, any kind of, like, uh, moral outrage, but, like, I do have, like, sort of like an artistic outrage, I guess. Right, right. In the sense that, in the sense that, okay, so she said, uh, and I'm not quite quoting her, I don't have the exact quotes here, but... She she basically said that she she didn't feel like she felt like the inclusion of a black character in the movie would have stolen the focus away from the female empowerment kind of thing that she's doing, which I also think is is misguided. Uh, but uh, uh, and she didn't want to take the focus away. Well, the movie has already been done. It was you're remaking yeah, I mean, Don Siegel's the. The Beguiled. It's already been mm-hmm. done, and it wasn't the in the original movie. The focus isn't taken away. She's she's a uh, she's you a. You could have uh, included someone. I do. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could have included. She, she plays a. She, they end up giving a lot of the stuff that the black character in the movie, uh, the original movie, a lot of the stuff that they. Uh, that she does is given to other characters. Right. So uh, I, I just think uh, I don't. All I can say is that maybe she felt personally uh, uh, uncomfortable writing black characters. She's never had a black character in any one of her movies. Right. That's very. Not, that's a great not point. One, that's... Not one black character in any one of her movies. So maybe she feels uncomfortable writing for them. But the script, the original script, is already written. The movie is out there. Just follow the yeah. path that he took, that yeah, they took. But it, I, I think that's a weak excuse. It's a weak excuse, but I, but I, you know what? You know, I'm you know watching it. I'm thinking, yeah, this definitely needs something there. But at the same time, I I I, I understand why she did it. I completely understand why she did it. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, maybe this isn't. Maybe not make the movie then. Because I don't know how you make a movie about the Civil War in the South in 2017 and not include that. Just some mention, at least. I mean, but I do get, on the other hand, I get it, though. I completely understand it. I mean, I just think the knives out for her for this is just, um, you know, people just want to, sometimes you know, people just want to crucify someone every week. I mean, <laughs> I, hate to say yeah. it. I just think they want to crucify but I'm conflicted about it because of the same. Yeah, it would have been nice. I mean, we know she's not a, a racist. I mean, we can honestly say that, although people want to say that she's a hor- the most horrible person in the world. But um, no, I think I I, I agree with the, what she wanted to do. I thought she felt uncomfortable. And well, yeah, that may be a weak excuse. I get it because let's say she did it, and then if she did it wrong, and people would have just jumped all over her too. You can't win either maybe, way. Yeah. Maybe maybe that maybe that was a an issue for her too. She was she was afraid to do it. She was afraid that people would would uh, you know pillory her over it. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so I mean, you know, and I'm sure I'm sure it's because that. it's I'm sure it's because it's beyond her realm of experience. 
I I, I yes. don't know how much ex- how much experience Sofia Coppola has in her own life. Uh, I mean, she seems she seems to, to have been certainly she's very privileged and probably a little sheltered. So, and I think her movies reflect that. Um, but when she said uh, my version of the beguiled is. I wasn't interested in exploring the racial aspect, only the one concerning gender. So when she said that, I thought to myself, well, the original Beguiled must be the one that tackles racism. <laughs> so I watched I watched the original Beguiled, and I was like, no, this is about gender. It's about gender yeah. politics. It's, uh, it so is. It, it, it's the same goddamn movie. Uh, why bother? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, don't... I, I don't understand it. I, 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 I really do find it. Uh, I, again, I don't find it morally reprehensible. I just find it like, what? Like, why would you do that? Like, just remake the movie. Yeah. <laughs> remake the movie. Have the same she characters. Won't. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just one of these things. Look, at the end of the day, you know, it's a good movie. In a couple of years, no one will, they'll, all, they'll go back and talk about the Eastwood one. I don't know if this is the one that'd be very honest. Um mm-hmm. It's a good. Don't get me wrong. It's a good movie, but it's just we'll always when we talk about the Beguiled, I think we will talk about the Don Cena yeah. one, not hers. And honestly, I think so too. As a, and I, I, as I, I do think it's distasteful to whitewash it. Uh, so I, I mean, I do think she was distasteful in that respect. As a female empowerment movie, too. I mean, like you know what's? I, and listen, let me just be upfront about this. I haven't watched the, the new Beguiled. Okay, so let me just say this, but. Uh, I uh, I do also, you know, uh, you, you can answer this, Jerry. You know, in the original movie, uh, all of the quote unquote heroines in the movie um, are uh, are kind of reprehensible people. Uh, they're they're all they're all shitty, and uh, there, there's nobody in there that you're like, wow, I really. Admire that person, or no? They're all they're all crappy. So yeah, and they're exactly all is, they're all led I, by their loins too. Yeah, which is another yeah. thing. Is that very feminist? You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what's 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 uh, empowering about the movie? How, how does the movie reflect? Empowering. I mean, I mean know, that's what look, she wanted, right? She, she, that's she what wanted, she wanted that. I mean, she. I mean, look. You know, I don't know what are, I, I, as three men, I don't know how comfortable I feel about talking about female empowerment. Uh, <laughs> because then we just, no, because then again, no, because then it's another thing that I can't stand the whole idea of social justice warriors, which is another thing that I just think has just been bullshit, is a, a lot of BS at the end of the day, too. So um, I just don't know. I don't see the female empowerment. It is a study in women getting their revenge that's and that's completely justifiable and that's understandable in terms of the story but you can honestly just look at that this is just people um you know the colin farrell represents the north and and if you really or clint eastwood represents the north whatever the man represents the north and the south here they're trying to defend their values when they this is their way of fighting the war if you will this is their way of fighting the war so they're doing their part. So it's definitely you could take it as a, as a movie that's very pro-South in its own way. Um, now, as far as gender and female empowerment, I don't know. I, I got to be honest; it's not that different from the well, original. Here's, here's one. an interesting. 
this would make it interesting because um, you you can possibly look at the Don Siegel beguiled the same way that you look at something like Straw Dogs. If Don Siegel's beguiled is being held up as this kind of virtue of feminism when it's really about all these women that are driven crazy and murderous because they can't get their rocks off, uh, yeah, you know, and, and the same way with Straw Dogs, it, it some people view it as a strong feminist viewpoint because she actually enjoys the rape. Th- those elements of it are what make those movies so provocative and controversial and divisive. It would be mm-hmm. interesting, and, and not the least reason of which is that they were both directed by men. It would be interesting to see a woman direct her own version of that, mm-hmm. uh, right? And so I would understand coming at a remake from that vantage point. But uh, but my understanding is that the, the in this new Beguiled that that the story isn't radically changed. It's, no, 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 still, no, no. There's no. still a, there, there, a lot of the anger comes from the fact that they feel that a lot of the women feel uh, used or uh, jealous or whatever. So if there's nothing very that screams female empowerment about all of that. Really. No, I mean, I mean no, it's, it's like it's like you you could say this is when Zack Snyder said Sucker Punch was about female empowerment. Okay, uh-huh. uh, not not that bad, but um, you know, you could, <laughs> I mean, you you could certainly you know say that. No, it it is a it's a remake. It is a remake in every sense of the word, minus obviously the elements we've been talking about. But yes, yeah, about a couple a lot of hard up women. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, let's let's not beat around the bush. <laughs> no pun intended, and, but it's about a lot of hard, hard up. And women. a little girl that's mad because her because he uh, he kills her turtles. So. Oh yeah, I forgot. <laughs> I killed. Yeah, they killed. Yeah, I forgot all about that. Oh um, <laughs> no. Um, the other thing though about I will say this about the Regal. It was it, it when it comes for, when it, when we talk about cinematography, Oscars at the end of the year though this certainly deserves one of the most beautiful beautifully shot movies I've seen this year. Mm, well, yeah. Very I mean that I got it got it. It's the one thing that really stands out about this movie is um it's it's um it's very beautifully shot. But going back to Sofia Coppola, if we ever really under, want to understand her, all you have to do is watch her masterpiece, Marie Antoinette. I mean her first three movies are her to a T. Yeah. I mean they're all autobiographical. Let's be very honest. When we talk about Sofia Coppola, we're talking about poor little rich girl. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you know, I go back. I always go back to. Uh, now I hated this piece of film, but and I think it's one of the worst, <laughs> worst favorite, maybe the worst thing that Coppola has ever directed. But that little short film in in uh, New York Stories. Uh, yeah, you know, it's the about, worst of the three for sure. Huh? <laughs> that she wrote and stars in. Uh, um, and um, that that piece, uh, you know, the, I I think that piece is very indicative of like what her life is really like. I think, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, but but yeah, I, I I agree that you know the other movies, uh, particularly Lost in Translation, somewhere, and Marie Antoinette have very much to say about her life too. But yeah, there's also so. something. Well, going back to the Lost in Translation, you know, I, is it, let me ask you, it's been a long time since I've watched Lost in Translation. It takes place in Tokyo. Are there any Japanese people in the movie? <laughs> uh, that's that's a good question. I'd have to go back and take a look at that, too. Okay, before I, I, well, no, I mean, any, they, they, are, they, are, they are all tangential characters. 
So yeah. Lost in Translation is really about uh, the uncomfortability of being the other. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, right. And, and, and in its own way, I think that speaks to her sheltered existence. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, you go to these places and everything, and you don't venture really that far out of your comfort zone. Yeah, and there's been the, and there's been that criticism of her movies, really, at least up till the Bling Ring, that she does not venture outside her comfort zone as a filmmaker. She sticks in that whole loneliness um, theme, and she very rarely um, goes out of that. That's mm. always been a criticism of her um, filmmaking. Yeah. Hey, listen, uh, you know, before we go, I have two things that I want to like talk about real quick. Uh, that uh, that I've seen recently that I absolutely love. Uh, I'll bring the one that I know that uh, at least Jerry's probably seen, which is uh, uh, Aziz Ansari's uh, Master of None. Uh, oh yeah, that was good. That was a very good. That was the second season was very good. I, I really I think that's, that. That's the best thing I've seen all year, uh, whether it's television or. Um, War movies. Uh, I <clears throat> I just loved every single second of it. You know, there's uh, it's very rare to see in uh, in any um, in any narrative these days a love story, uh, or in this case maybe a story of infatuation. Uh, we don't know if it's really love yet, but. Um, uh, I've never seen uh I haven't seen in a long time a love story that that I've bought into so completely as I have with his uh his relationship with um oh gosh what's her name uh Alessandra uh oh jeez I can't even remember her name Alessandra I can't I don't remember her name either. um I'm trying to look for it right now but uh that uh, that love story is incredible. His his filmmaking is just uh, astoundingly good. His writing is uh, completely on point. Uh, the casting, the editing, that uh, whole uh, episode called New York, I Love You. Uh, where, yeah, that was where, great. Where he he sort of he sort of encapsulizes New York in in uh, uh, in a in a very very entertaining thirty minutes. Uh, it, it's just and the music choices that he has mm-hmm. are just uh, are just astoundingly perfect. Uh, just everything about every episode was perfect. Let me just say that right now. Every episode is uh, is. Uh, uh, by the way, her name is Alessandra Mastronardi. She is. Uh, I'm completely in love with this woman, <laughs> so and uh, and I can see why why the character would be too. But what a show! Uh, it's on Netflix. Um, it's better than it was in the first season. Oh, and let oh, me yeah. just say this too: Has any other filmmaker ever <laughs> casted? I mean, maybe, maybe uh, uh, I guess uh, I guess maybe Martin Scorsese, obviously, but. Um, uh him using his own parents as as he's using his own parents right as the actors playing his parents it's just a stroke of brilliance and they are so freaking funny particularly the father uh they are so uh, funny i just can't even stand it uh 
uh, how great they are. I can't believe that they're not uh, – maybe the mother a little bit more, but the father, I can't believe he's not really an actor. Um, right. it, it's, it's, yeah, it's they, just, don't, they don't like being part of it. Like it's a, oh, really? It's like a burden, a, yeah, a burden for them to take part in it. But huh. they just do it so they could spend time with their son. Oh, well, that's kind of sweet too. But uh, you know, it, it, that's that's uh, yeah. I don't know. It's I I just you know, it's got such a you know what else is so refreshing about it too is you know a lot of cable shows you know uh, try and try and over for lack of a better word they try and uh, I guess sort of dirty up the uh the thing i mean like just recently I, well uh you know let me just say this there's not a lot of crazy sex scenes in it there's not a lot of crazy you know uh you know language in it or whatever mm-hmm. it's not a prudish show so they don't stay away from from talking about things sexual and so forth and and i'm fine with a lot of that stuff but sometimes i think you know shows go overboard with it uh and uh and and let me just put it as simply as I possibly can. It's a show that you can probably watch with your parents. You know, you could mm-hmm. you could watch this show with your parents. Unlike a show like another, uh, like an Amazon show like Fleabag, for instance, which you don't mm-hmm. want to be watching. Right. You don't want to be watching. Fleabag is great too, but you don't want to be watching that with your parents in the room. So, uh, but uh, just everybody needs to go out and take a look at that. And finally, I wanted to say this. I watched a movie from 1951 the other day that blew me the fuck away. Uh, I could not believe that I had never heard of it, even though it's done by a great director. And it's just a movie that I just feel like deserves to be, uh, you know, entered into the pantheon of uh, of great movies from that time period. Uh, it's directed by Anthony Mann, uh, the great uh, Western and noir director from that period, and uh, it's called The Tall Target, and it stars Dick Powell. Uh, it's set in 19, uh, 1861, and it stars Dick Powell as a New York detective who's traveling from New York to Baltimore and then to Atlanta, uh, t- trying to uh, thwart an assassination attempt against Abraham Lincoln. And uh, this is an incredibly taut movie at uh, 78 minutes, only 78 minutes long. It's uh, low budget, uh, but the low budget doesn't show on screen because it's so well uh, photographed uh, that it just covers all that up. Um, But it's based on a true story. Uh, you know, they did they did have to thwart this uh, while Abraham Lincoln was trying to make his way to Baltimore to give a speech uh, before his inauguration, uh, and uh, pe- people were so angry at his election because they knew that it would probably bring a war that they uh, wanted to eliminate Lincoln early on. But what a script this movie has! Uh, just, just a fantastic script. Uh, Adolf Manju uh, is also in it, who people, movie fans, might remember most as as sort of the villainous uh, general in Paths of Glory. 
And Ruby D is great in it as a slave uh, who is on board uh, tending to the wife. Uh, 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 well, the wife tending to the wife of one of the uh, possible assassins. Let's put it that way. And uh, Will Gear is in it. Leif Erikson uh, is uh, terrific in it as well. It's kind of a kind of a nefarious guy. Extremely, it all takes place on on a train, so they very rarely get out of the train, and it, it's it's extremely uh, claustrophobic and very exciting with a great final shot. Uh, just amazing movie. I just can't can't stand uh, how much I love it, and uh, uh, it's out there on Warner Archives, so it is available to see on uh, digital. Uh, but oh, cool. It, cool, it's, it's really something that really needs to be seen, and it, it would make a great movie to remake. Uh, you know, it would be fantastic. Well, so you much. know, Sophia Coppola said she's remaking it. She's just remaking yeah, without the Ruby, Ruby D character. <laughs> <laughs> Ruby D is so great in it, too. She's, she's, she's she must maybe be very the, young in it. She must be yeah, very there, she must be very young, very young, uh, and uh, and she's she's uh, she's superb in it. It's so well written. Uh, what a, what a movie! Uh, Anthony Mann oh. is somebody that you just if you see his name as a director or a writer or anything, you can almost take it to the bank. It's going to be great. You just he just didn't Does do he get bad the job stuff. Done? Does he get the job yeah. done? He gets the job done and then goes back around and does it again. <laughs> yeah, we had a listener, uh, just... Luke, that Luke that wrote us last uh, last week that said he was cracking up at that whole get the job done thing. He, said he, 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 he listened to our you... Summer of 92 show twice. How can you say that? And then how can you say get the job done about Patriot Game at least level three? But oh, Raising Kane, no, it doesn't get the job done. <laughs> Christ, Jesus <laughs> Christ! Oh, that doesn't get the job done, but Lethal Weapon three does. Jesus <laughs> Christ! That just uh, shows you what a uh, nebulous kind of thing that was. Like, what? Yeah, what's I mean, the job? What is it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? what is the job? What's what is it? <laughs> to take your money and and that's it, or? Keep your ass in the seat. What is it? <laughs> you know, but that was fun. That was yeah. All right. No, that sounds. I'll, I'll, I'll look for that. I'll definitely look for that, Dean. Thank you for the heads up. That's it's called awesome. the tall. It's called the tall target. Watch it. You you won't be disappointed. Not to be confused with the tall man, or That's the tall target, <laughs> or the tall T, or the movie targets. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay. You know what? I made the mistake one time. I always felt bad about this. Nat Segaloff used to be such a close friend of the show, and when I interviewed him about Arthur Penn, which was the last interview we did, I let it slip how ridiculous I thought Target was. Uh, and I think he really Dillon? took offense to it. Yeah. The Matt Dillon movie, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. I think he really took offense to it. I was like, did Arthur Penn take Target seriously? I mean, was that did he think a lot of that movie? And he said, well, yeah, yeah, he cared a lot about it. And I said, oh, God, I think it's so ridiculous. And then you have Matt Dillon that talks like he's a 
menopausal girl and he's pouting all the time and he's like <laughs> she's gone she's been gone for 48 hours say it right dad that's two days <laughs> and i'm like what a ridiculous line <laughs> you know what i've never seen that movie all the way through i've seen little bits and pieces of it but it was just a movie that just didn't look like it was going to be appealing and even though i like those two actors of course i just never have watched it uh, but uh, I did watch uh, uh, Dead of Winter, which is another Arthur Penn film. That like, how did he get into this? Like, I, yeah. you know, I, yeah, Can't yeah. Be. I mean, Mary Steenburgen never been better. And then there's <laughs> the uh, I was I was watching Dreamscape. Um, speaking of bad lines, and Christopher Plummer plays a villain in Dreamscape, and he actually has a line where he's talking about the secret experiments that they have going on, and he says, this experiment is vital and very important. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Sounds funny, but I just can't stand the pain. And I'm leaving you tomorrow. Seems to me, girl, you know I've done all I can. You see, I beg, stole, and I borrowed. That's why I'm easy 